Welcome to the Scottish Liberty Podcast, episode 113. Today we have on our show a white male. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, not entirely kidding. We have oh, yeah, our, okay. our guest today, is Jason Manning, <laughs> the author of the excellent, extraordinary book, um, The Rise of Victimhood Culture. He is a sociologist and he's going to educate us not only on the primary concepts of his book, but on why we as libertarians should take an interest in the field of sociology and what gems of wisdom it might have for us. Yeah, I'm Anthony Samrock. This is Tom and Laird. As usual, I'm Tom Laird. So, <clears throat> Jason, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So why don't you tell us a bit about what led up to you writing this book? I mean, um, what, uh, why the need to write about the rise yeah, of what could possibly be going on yeah and um, why why are you punching down yeah <laughs> punching down at those those ivy league students who will make four times what i do within a few years um well i guess all this started well a little bit of background on what i study i suppose is uh my specialty is i study conflict and uh, try to explain why people handle conflict in different ways why uh you take one grievance to the courts, you take another one to the streets, you take another one, you know, just grumble about it at home and don't do much else besides, and that sort of thing. And, and within that, I've read a lot about the study of violence and, and you know, vengeance killings and uh, violent conflict and, and even suicide, like protest suicide. So that's, that's where I was coming from with this stuff. And my friend and sometimes co-author Bradley Campbell also studies conflict. And he forwarded me back in 2013, he forwarded me a news item about Oberlin College, which is a private liberal arts college in the States. And it's known for its progressive politics. Uh, okay. Lots of anti-racism, anti-sexist uh, movements. Someone reported seeing a member of the Ku Klux Klan walking around campus. Yeah. And if you don't know, the Klan have their regalia with the, the pointy hoods and the white ghost like robes and I thought those were just Halloween costumes they were just going as ghosts <laughs> um, yeah so someone thought they saw a Klansman walking about Oberlin College and this seemed incredibly unlikely to us yeah that, you know this is this is a fringe movement in the modern US yeah it's not a movement you find amongst the elites especially not amongst yeah. the progressive elites so yeah and I guess if they were going to go around doing up to no good, you're not exactly going to, you know, draw attention to yourself while you're doing it either. Right, right. Yeah. It's like painting the kick me sign on your back or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, it turned out the, the alleged Klansman was a woman who was wrapped in a blanket. I know, but it was very inconsiderate of her to microaggress against people by not considering what the implications of wearing a blanket in public might have been. You know, she should have been psychic and known what other people might think. And then when she started burning that cross on someone's lawn, I mean, that was just pushing it too far. So, I mean, was, it, was this blanket? I mean, it was, <laughs> was it, I mean, just a general blanket? I mean, did, did it even look, was it a white blanket so you, you could see where they were coming from or? I suppose it was. I'm not sure okay. of the exact right. detail there, but the point is, it's pretty far fetched to jump from that. Yeah. I think you've seen a, a Klansman marching through your college, but everyone believed this very quickly, and it was a scare on campus. And we started looking at some other things that happened on that particular campus. Uh, there was an a, a outbreak of anti Semitic graffiti, and that turned out to be also not what it seemed. It was right. uh, somebody just trying to get a rise out of people and not you know someone actually campaigning in favor of, of anti-Semitism. And then we found this website, Oberlin Microaggressions, which as you mentioned, microaggression. Mm. Um, this is the first time we heard of this concept, which now is everywhere. This yeah. is one of the things nobody heard of five years ago that suddenly is part of our, our modern discourse, uh, even into the rules and regulations in some corporations, even uh, government agencies now. Yeah. But we found this website where people were complaining about these minor verbal slights, often accidental slights, uh, unintentional. Mm. And it included things like somebody saying, uh, I'm glad my husband and I both have blue eyes because I would be nice if our kid had blue eyes and that was called casual racism. Yeah. Um, another example was somebody uh, 
a white person playing what, what we in the U.S. call soccer, you know, football, playing football with a Hispanic person, and they use the Spanish word football, and that was offensive for some reason, and the post said, keep my heritage language out of your mouth. And there were these other things that, you know, some of them seemed sort of commonsensically, okay, that's an awkward thing to say. I could see why someone might not like that. Others were like, are you out of your mind? That's not even yeah. offensive at all. Right. And they were all lumped together and they were called aggression. Mm. We just found that very strange. And it reminded us of a line from a old French sociologist, a 19th century sociologist named Durkheim, who talked about morality and the tendency of social groups to police deviance in their own ranks and to find it if it's there or not. Mm-hmm. And his idea was that even in a society of saints, the least saintly would be branded a sinner. Yeah. Uh, they, would, they would find someone amongst themselves to judge. And that seemed to be what was going on. There's this place where you know, racism and sexism are at historical lows and so actual true. acts of aggression by and large are very rare. But when people start labeling these minor unintentional things acts of racist aggression. And that became fascinating to us. And so we started writing our book about victimhood culture based on that. Right. And um, one of the things you say in your book is that microaggressions are defined in such a way that it makes no defense possible because uh, it's very subjective. First, um, not only is it very subjective what counts as a microaggression, but it's um, down to the person who's making the allegation whether Mm. it is a microaggression or not and highly dependent on their uh, race or uh, themselves which makes it sound like the left are far from sorry I don't want to you know say it's all of the left but you know what I mean this uh, it's certainly not found in the right um, Mm. who were previously um, saying that they want a colorblind world are now wanting people's claims to be judged based upon their race. So uh, one is one is the opposite of the other. Uh, one of the things that really interested me, and one of the reasons why I wanted to get you in the show, because it was a concept that I actually felt made clarity of the world, is you contrast victimhood culture versus as a as a uh, versus honor and dignity cultures, which are previous cultures that have a certain way of approaching conflict. I was just mm-hmm. wondering if you could parse that out for our audience, because I think it really is um, a concept that helps us make a sense of the world and indeed conflict. Sure, sure. Well, coming at this as we do from uh, the study of often violent conflict, I mean, I teach a course called Sociology of Violence. And in that area, honor culture is a very important concept because uh, honor cultures tend to have very high rates of violent conflict. And, and the basic definition of honor culture is a, a social setting where there's a very strong emphasis on maintaining status in the eyes of other people, and you do it by displaying your bravery and aggressiveness. Right. And so the term honor can have all kinds of other connotations too, but that's sure. often the core of it is uh, bravery and willingness to respond aggressively to slights. And this is the thing that led the gentlemen and aristocrats in the olden days to fight duels with one another. Even at the slightest little insult or two dogs are fighting in the park, it leads to a duel with rapiers or pistols or what have you, or someone gets killed. And leads to things like, uh, you know, feuds and warfare between clans and other types of family groups in pre-modern societies. And even today, you know, you go into a rough neighborhood, there's still this ethic of you've got to be tough, you've got to let no one disrespect you. Yeah, and be willing to fight back if someone steps on your shoes and doesn't apologize immediately. That's right. And Um, so, people who study the historical decline of violence often point to this transition away from honor cultures. This is no longer the mainstream culture in the West. Uh, You still get pockets of it. You get it in certain, say, uh, especially rough or poor neighborhoods. But you know, our elites don't kill each other in duels anymore. And this is not something that's common in, in the middle classes at all. And they say we transitioned away from a culture of honor where there's this high sensitivity uh, because you want to make sure you're maintaining your reputation. You don't want to lose face and lose honor in other people's eyes. You're always on the lookout for slights to a culture of, of dignity where there's a low sensitivity to slight because you know your dignity can't be taken away. Mm. So it's a different kind of moral concept. Yeah. Emphasize in a dignity culture. No longer are, is, are they as concerned with 
honor as this thing that can be taken by others or that depends on the opinions of others. Instead, there arises this, this ideal of, well, we're all human beings. We all have inherent dignity. We all have human rights, your sort of basic enlightenment ideals of moral equality. And carrying that forward, uh, well, who cares if someone insults me, right? It makes mm -hmm. him like an asshole, not me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so That's right. fighting back against insults and stuff becomes less important. And even, you know, you start to, like, you're belittling yourself if you react too strongly because you should have some confidence in your own worth and your own human dignity. So don't don't be too thin-skinned. Don't be too sensitive. Uh, you know, don't try to give offense, but don't try to take it either. And that's... Yeah the moral ideal in dignity cultures. And part of the reason you can have that ideal is because it's no longer considered shameful to, if something really bad does happen, if you're assaulted or someone tries to steal your stuff, you can go to the law, uh, go to the courts, and that's not shameful. In an honor culture, that'd be shameful because that's mm. like you can't do it yourself. And mm. that's a sign of cowardice too. Yeah, so You have this change from a, a culture where there's a high sensitivity to slight and a tendency to handle grievances with violence to a culture where there's a low sensitivity to slight, but if something's severe enough, you handle it with the legal system. Right. Right. Um, what you've said brings up quite a few associations in my head. Um, I want to talk a little bit about prison. Um, I remember hearing from the, the prison psychologist James Gilligan that one of the main reasons why men ended up in jail for violence is they said, he dissed me, he dissed me, yeah. he disrespected yeah. me. Therefore, he'd violated their honor, right? Mm. Now, I was recently reading the book Poverty Safari by a Scottish author, Darren McGarvey. We've had him on our show. And he talked about an incident in a prison where he volunteered teaching uh, prisoners to rap. Um, about where someone slashed someone in the face over a piece of toast. Now, mm -hmm. the idea was it wasn't about the piece of toast. Being willing to cut someone in the face over a piece of toast was to ward off violence in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Now no one's gonna fuck with me, okay? They yeah. know that I'm yeah. not gonna back down from yeah. a conflict. Yeah, if that's what you're gonna do over a piece of toast, what are you going to yeah. do, you know, if, if something mm. that, that's really important to you? Yeah. And and it reminds me also of in hip-hop culture, you know, I say think of Eminem rapping about Christina Aguilera, dissing her because yeah. she mentioned him in an interview, right? Yeah. Or Insane Clown Posse, or in rap culture, if someone right. mentions you in an interview or slags you off, you have to right, right. So dissing them otherwise right. you're backing down and it's just the same except for it's with with words you, you're if you let it slide then you know you you, you so uh, uh, but yeah, you'll, you, you'll lose the the respect to your peers that's mm -hmm. it and uh, one of the things you say in the book is about a a clash First of honor and dignity culture, and then mm. we'll come around to a clash of dignity and victim culture. Mm. And you give the example of Hamilton, uh, the uh, the founding father of the USA, mm. being shot in a duel. Now, yeah. what was expect? But uh, many libertarians' least favorite founding father, I would add, um, <laughs> probably deserved uh, the status <laughs> bastards. Uh, uh, as he put the general welfare clause in the constitution. What a dick. Yeah. Anyway, I'm kidding. But anyway, what you said is that they, they were engaging in an honor-based conflict. Mm -hmm. And the consequences for the vice president was that he was dishonored. People treated him like a murderer, which isn't mm -hmm. what he was expecting. So mm -hmm. they were saying he should have presented himself with more dignity. And it reminds me of the song, the Kenny Rogers song, The Coward of the County, mm -hmm. where he's told by his father, you don't, son, you don't have to fight to be a man. And in the end, he gets into a conflict and he says to his dad, sometimes you've got to fight to be a man. Sometimes, And that, that's the same concept right there in that song. Now, I'm sure that the country singer who wrote that song didn't, wasn't a sociologist, but he intuited... <laughs> exactly mm. what you're talking about yeah. mm. and when i used to listen to that song i thought well i'm i'm i don't know how much now here would be a, an interesting sociological study are people like me who grew up being a weedy guy 
I've started going to the gym. I'm a little bit more masculine than I used to be when we started this show. You know, are they more inclined to be like, oh, all this machismo and uh, I, I hate machismo and I hate all this aggression because we're like preconditioned not to not to want to fight. Now, that that's a different question. But mm -hmm. um, you brought up this um, example of a professor called uh, Erica Christakis, yeah. who. Um, you, you can tell the story because it's a really great example of a conflict, not between honour and dignity culture, mm -hmm. but between dignity culture and victimhood culture. And, and I'm sure you'll explain to us what the difference between victimhood culture and these two are. Sure. So we were looking at things like the microaggression blogs and the bizarre readiness of people to believe that, you know, Klansmen lurked among them at these elite liberal arts schools. And we also looked at uh, the incident you referenced, the, the Erica Christakis affair, which was a case where you had this uh, professor who, they have, they have these, uh, this position at the university where they, they live in the dorms with the students and sort of act as, as I don't know, uh, um, I don't know, chaperones or chaperones slash role model slash whatever. Yeah, okay, mentor. Yeah, yeah, mentor figures. And well, anyway, the, the conflict begins when the university administration circulates some guidelines about avoiding offensive Halloween costumes. And this professor, Christakis, um, just sends out a message on the email server saying something along the lines of um, should we really be policing Halloween costumes or should we trust the students to handle this themselves through mm. social norming and talking things out and you know trust in their maturity to not offend one another and to talk out their differences so not even you know blanketly saying don't you know not not encouraging offensive costumes or not saying we shouldn't be concerned about it just saying should we not regulate it from above yeah but these people who are uh, old enough to to vote in presidential elections, yeah. act like adults. Now, had I had I seen this email beforehand, before this conflict erupted, I would have thought, oh, she's probably the popular professor there. She stands up for their autonomy and their their yeah, maturity. Leave those kids alone. Yeah, let them let them do what they want. Uh, instead, she got vilified. The kids flipped out, and they viewed this as a violation of. Uh, their safe space, their safety, and and I, I, at this point, I'm fuzzy in all the details of this whole fracas. At the mm -hmm. time, I read about it pretty closely, but basically, the kids started like uh, protesting and c complaining to the administration, and really just going off as if they they had been you know, insulted and, and harmed by this mm. suggestion. And uh, Erica's uh, husband, Nicholas, who's also a professor there, tried to engage some students in conversation and they shouted him down and cussed him out and told him that he needed to quit his job and all this other stuff. Right. You had this huge uproar over this, where this, this professor's being vilified for merely suggesting that the university doesn't need to regulate students' Halloween costumes because as adults, they could sort it out for themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to, to, to us, this and the microaggression blog and these other things didn't seem to fit into that dignity, honor dichotomy very well at all. Because when people talk about the decline of honor, they often emphasize the decline of sensitivity to slight. Uh, no longer do people have that hair trigger temper because they need to be aware of any disrespect and mm -hmm. need to you know, fight over the toast to prevent a bigger fight later on. Mm. Uh, stakes are much lower and people can afford to let things slide and not be so sensitive and alert to signs of disrespect. Well, that doesn't appear to be what's going on on these campuses. They seem also to have a hair trigger sense mm. of offense and a quick willingness to interpret things in the worst possible light. On the other hand, the honorable wouldn't be complaining like that to authority figures and, and advertising and emphasizing, oh, we've been harmed, we're, we're unsafe, protect us. That's dishonorable. Yeah. That's yeah, dishonorable. right. Aren't worthy of respect in an honor culture. Uh, you would go out and handle it aggressively and in case yes. closed. If you bragged about anything, you'd brag about how, you know, 
you shut that person up with violence, mm -hmm. uh, you want to make a big deal about how much you've been harmed and emphasize that aspect of it. Yeah. So it seemed to combine different elements of these two moral cultures that people had recognized before. And so we decided it needed a new term. So we, we came up with this term victimhood culture, which is, has been a bit controversial mm -hmm. of a term. Um, it sounds like a criticism or something like a right way pundit would say, but we were trying to draw attention to the fact that these people advertise their victimization, the harm they've suffered and their lowliness or that they're disadvantaged or that they're a minority in a way that the honorable certainly would not. They would hide that. You, you would be shamed by admitting to uh, any sort of inferiority or any sort of victimization. Yeah. But, but here it's, it's advertised and emphasized. It's almost to us like the opposite of honor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was that was how we came up with that concept to try to make sense of these things we were seeing, like the Christakis affair, like the microaggression complaints, or like uh, sometime around 2014, 2013, is when we started hearing the phrase "check your privilege." Yeah, yeah. And this idea that people need to confess their privilege as if it's a sin. Yeah. Like that, which does also seemed a little bit like the reverse of honor culture where you, know, you brag about how much money you have and right. rap songs. They always like to brag about yeah, their money sure. and their, their style and all that. And uh, You get the same thing in ancient times or amongst aristocrats. You, you have your flashy lifestyle. But here it's, you know, confess your privilege. It's like shaming somebody. It's like he would shame a coward in an honor culture. So hmm. it seems, again, like the opposite sort of moral system in a lot of ways. Yeah, the oppression Olympics, some people term uh, it uh, <laughs> yeah, less yeah. than endearingly. I mean, I, I think of all the things that we could take offense to as libertarians in the mainstream culture if we chose to, the way that people who support free markets are portrayed. Um, Fat cat capitalists. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you we know. hate poor people. Uh, well, some, well, I hate poor people. <laughs> I kind of walked into that one. Yeah, yeah like you, you cited an example of a Japanese American who took it, who claimed that he was being microaggressed against because when he was in Japan, people said, oh, you're really good at using chopsticks or, oh, right. your Japanese is really good. Which, mm -hmm. you know, if someone, I don't know, um, African-American was told, oh, your English is really good, they take it as a microaggression, but he was maligned or criticized for claiming that he was microaggressed. Why? Because he's part of the, the the group that is intended, that is thought to always be privileged. Um, so, I mean, what? Where is the? Can we? Can we even pinpoint where this trend begins? Is there any indicators? There's been some sociologists, I think, here in the the UK and I think in America, that have said that somehow it's linked to an overparenting or a parental over concern for children yeah. and not exposing them to to uh to the to, to the normal hazards of, of daily life and mm -hmm. and therefore they, they it's some sort of arrested development i don't know i mean you're the sociologist is, is there, <laughs> what well, specialize in, in childhood socialization as okay. such. yeah that's definitely <laughs> something people have been pointing to um the, the term I hear a lot these days is helicopter parenting. The parents are always hovering there, ready to intervene against anything that might cause yeah. the child. <clears throat> yeah, picking them up from school, taking them to school, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Not allowing them time to play without supervision in the playground, right. no ability to let them solve their interpersonal conflicts right. uh, by themselves and learn how to do that, or, or modeling how to solve Right. interpersonal conflicts maybe whenever they have an argument with their spouse they say let's not argue in front of the kids mm -hmm. and then uh, the kids never learn to solve conflicts because they don't see their parents solving conflicts right, all right. sorts of things you can look into the statistics on this but they're okay. out there that the, the amount of uh, free play time that youth have has decreased drastically schools have right. recessed on away with it uh, particularly like amongst the uh, middle and upper classes there's this move to always have your kid involved in some sort of structured adult driven activity drive them to soccer practice or football practice or what have you and then to the piano lessons and so forth and so on and yeah um if you're not just having a lot of time to interact and practice interacting without yeah. an authority there to depend on 
how are you ever going to get good at it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's practice. So, I mean, I know um, when I was a kid, uh, which wasn't exactly last week, I mean, the playground was quite a hazardous place in terms of you, know, you had to negotiate all these interpersonal uh, conflicts. Mm. I think most guys of my age, you know, very early on had had, had a good hard kick in the testicles at some <laughs> point. And uh, if, unless you're a complete psychopath or unless you're a, a, a complete hard case, most mm. normal guys go, okay, that was really painful. I'm going to spend the rest of my life avoiding that where I, where I possibly can. <laughs> uh, this is my view. There's not enough kids getting kicked in the testicles. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the, the solution to this victimhood culture is for Tam to go into <laughs> universities and line up the students and successfully kick each of yeah. them in the testicles. So I'm, I'm amplifying and statistics here on the, the yeah. uh, decline in the rate of testicle kicking over the past. <laughs> okay. That would be great, yeah. <laughs> I'm obviously amplifying and oversimplifying, but I mean, the, you, you kind of get what I'm driving at with, with that. Like, there's no, most conflicts, it would seem to me, take place on their mobile phone. Yeah. And when there's no actual physical imminent harm or consequence to that, you know, you could say a lot of things on there uh, you know, and, and form little peer groups um, mm -hmm. that there's there's no consequence to ostracizing people. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the slightest thing that's said that doesn't get liked mm -hmm. or the slightest thing that's said that gets disliked can make mm -hmm. someone either, uh, you know, you know, liked or disliked. And, and it, so it all seems very disconnected and fractured. Yeah, and I just think that we don't have a culture. We've got too much comfort. We're the most comfortable generation that's ever lived, but we're not the happiest generation ever lived. And I think over the last few years in my personal life, I've really learned the value of like, you know, tempering yourself and trying to do things that you find really hard um, and uh, how, how beneficial that is. And it's not that we need to remove the comforts, but we need some substitute we can enjoy our comforts if at the same time we add deliberately, you know, going out to the woods and camping and, and learning to rough it and we, you know, or all sorts of rituals. We find out that, you know, uh, being forced into the cold showers or, or being uh, encouraged to, to encourage to um, temper yourself and undergo activities that you're going to find difficult while even being encouraged while being encouraged to take on that difficulty yeah well this is this is where i was actually well, thanks for that because that's where i was kind of driving that with the testicle kicking <laughs> thing um at some point it's in our past especially among tribal cultures there was a rite of passage uh between being a, regarded as a, a kid and then when you were officially a man so there right. was there was some line of, of demarcation there to say, okay, okay, you're not a kid anymore. Um, and then that would translate here in the UK, it would have probably translated into the apprenticeship system where we had mm -hmm. shipyards and mines and mm -hmm. you would serve your apprenticeship. And after you served your apprenticeship, you would be a fully fledged man and the, the guys would all take you and get you drunk. And, and mm -hmm. that, you know, you, there, was, there was no quarter given anymore. You're not a kid anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And in your view or in your experience and in what you researched in, is there could the the lack of any rites of passage, certainly amongst males, I can't I can't really speak for women, but certainly amongst males, a lack of rite of passage, whether it be national service or or anything like that, could that be a contributing factor in all this? I find that idea pretty plausible. Right. That you know, childhood varies across societies so how how long childhood is really. I mean yeah, didn't we invent the teenager in the 60s? Thing, but what's that? Didn't we invent the teenager in the 60s? I mean, there was no such thing really as a teenager be before then. You were you were either a, a boy or or you were a man. There was no kind of this middle thing. And it, right. it seems as if, so, seems as if yeah. teenager, yeah. yeah. And so you get these things, like you look back, uh, you know, 200 years ago and you could sign a binding contract at 13 and serve in the militia and things like that. And yeah. Maybe not for better or for worse, but no. the point is that uh, you know, childhood is a variable, and it seems like it's been creeping later and later and later into life. Yeah, yeah. The the past hundred years or so, and especially you know, like education contributes to this, which whatever benefits it might bring, this is a side effect. As you have people uh, 
not having those sorts of traditional adult responsibilities until age 25, 30, whatever. Yeah. And a lot of the cases, I mean, depending who you are, where you're from, depending on your parents to foot the bills for you still until you're into an age when in an earlier time you would have already established your own family or other, had some marker yeah. of dependence. And it just seems to be something that's just creeping, you know, higher and higher every generation. And with that, other elements of childhood sort of creep ahead too. Like the whole process gets stretched out. Definitely. And I think it's also the relationship of children to their, or not even children, then adults, to their uh, educators as well. Because you're like one of the problems I had when I was at uni was I was complaining about the um composition course because they wanted to teach us nothing but uh, this postmodern combat and I, I felt like the the university was a, a, a basically t the lecturers were basically telling us well we know what you need to learn right so I don't really care if you like the course or not like this is what we're teaching you and that is not the phenomenon you find when you go into a cafe or when you go into uh, um, a theatre, you don't go, well, if you're bored in the play, it's your fault. But if you're mm -hmm. bored in the lecture hall, it's apparently your fault, not mm -hmm. the lecture. I'm sure you're a very <coughs> stimulating lecturer, Jason. But, you know, I, I just feel like this was okay. Like, the, the, the length at which people are meant to submit to their service providers is becoming longer and longer and longer. And people don't, and this, this suits creating a servile population to, to enter, you know, conspiracy theory territory. Do you have anything to add? I have nothing to add to that. So I think that uh, that's a pretty cool introduction to your book um, and the main concepts therein. Let's uh, zoom out and look at the bigger picture. Uh, yeah. Sociology is a field. Yeah. What is sociology? <laughs> uh, and this is where the first problem yeah. starts, just even defining the damn thing. Um, I, would, I would approach it very broadly as it's just a study of uh, human social behavior, which immediately raises the question, okay, well, how do you distinguish it from all the other fields that claim to be doing the same thing, the yeah. anthropology and, and psychology and economics and so forth? And that's been uh, an issue since the founding of the field in the 19th century. And there was never any strong consensus on the answers. If you go back to the 19th century when people first started using this term and having this idea we can make a science of studying society and social behavior, you got people having different pictures of what that would be and what distinctive role that would fulfill in the division of labor in the sciences. And there was never any consensus achieved. One of the things that made me understand my own field a lot better actually was reading the history of science and learning about how other fields developed historically. And something like uh, the famous book uh, by Thomas Kuhn, uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. He spends a lot of time in there talking about what you know physical science looked like back when it was called natural philosophy. Mm. And before it had any sort of unified picture of what it was doing, like in the Middle Ages, you had all these different schools of thoughts for each field, whether you're studying optics or electricity or whatever, there'd be like five different schools of thought, all arguing with each other about the best way to do it, and no sort of unified consensus. And you could see that sociology in a lot of ways resembles medieval physics uh, without such a, of a unified paradigm, as, as okay. you call it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, that answer was less than useless. No, just, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. But, so I mean, is sort of there is a, is it part of a, a group or a family of sciences that you would maybe call behavioral sciences? Or I mean, there's a lot of overlap there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as a practical matter, uh, there is. So I mean, I say it's less than useless, but partly, like when I talk it's about it, for me, yeah. levels, right? There's the logical, rational way I would organize this in my head if I was able to dictate what all these terms meant. And then yeah. there's the actual way things evolved, which is often due to the vagaries of institutional politics and uh, different people jockeying to have resources at a university. And so um, sociology in a lot of ways has wound up being a, a grab bag of topics that other social sciences didn't already claim. So the economists yeah. got the market behavior, the traditional buying and selling behavior, 
which is part of social behavior. And there are sociologists who study it. They're called economic sociologists. Yeah. But that's what defines economics. Uh, anthropologists got the study of uh, tribal and traditional societies, things where you had to go learn a foreign language and stay in some other place. Uh, a lot of sociologists use basically the same method, but they tend to use it closer to home, studying yeah. subcultures in their own society. And so a lot of these differences became more matters of empirical specialization or practical things or methodological things like social psychology studies a lot of the same stuff as sociology, but they're very tightly wedded to the experimental method. So okay. if you want a social experiment, usually you go to a social psychologist. Uh, sociologists tended to focus more on uh, analyzing statistical data patterns uh, like homicide rates, suicide rates. Sure survey data, but you also have sociologists who do experiments. You also have ones who do uh, sort of anthropological field research. So like in a lot of ways, it's it's a grab bag of a field. Yeah. But it's to the extent there's anything unifying it, there's a sort of collection of 19th century thinkers uh, like Emile Durkheim and Max Weber. And they're often considered the, the main founders of the field. People kind of smuggled Marx in in the 60s. Right. Uh, under the radicals. Anything to say about Comte and his place in that August Comte uh, uh, and his place in that Trinity or Straight not? Straight out of Compton. But he's usually not someone emphasized in uh, sociological courses and we're training students. All right. Okay. People, so we, yeah. <laughs> that canon that we emphasize of classical thinkers, he kind of got left out. Okay. So, reasons so all out of Compton so I mean how difficult is it I mean when you're trying to follow a scientific method you know there's a there's a there's a way of doing things in order to establish what is you know scientific fact from fiction how difficult that is that in an environment where the very platforms the universities and the colleges mm. where uh, you're supposed to explore these things are absolutely ridden with this kind of postmodernist uh, philosophy that's continually looking for microaggressions and uh, I mean how do you even get funding how do you even uh, begin to study this thing properly it does have <coughs> difficulties and we talk a little bit about that in our yeah. book um, it, it becomes you know, the certain sorts of explanations that become taboo certain mm. sorts of facts you're not supposed to emphasize uh, the criminologist Richard Felsen calls this uh, blame analysis people's first route for judging an explanation is to say, who who does this blame? Is it blame the right people? Yeah. It's a logical error, because if it is an explanation, it's not the same as blaming somebody. Explaining and blaming are different things, but people don't always catch that distinction. Yeah. <clears throat> they think if you, uh, say, explain poverty with maybe some characteristics of the people in poverty, such as right. their culture, uh, then you're blaming them for being poor. Right. Yeah. So you can't say. Oh, you're not allowed to say it, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I've heard of some people who got rich that were poor that said, you know what, when I was trying to become successful, all the rich people I spoke to helped me. It was people from my neighborhood who said, oh, you're becoming a snob and things like that, that, that were actually hostile, yeah. hostile towards me. I mean, one of the things I hear, one of the accusations I hear all the time is that, I mean, for example, when the Professor Baron Cohen at Cambridge was was looking into um, autism in, in babies, and he discovered what he proposed were these gender differences at very early ages. Mm. And all you got out of a certain sector of academia was, well, why would you even ask that question? Right. You know, what, what you know, what what was your motivation for that? You know, why why would you even go? Why would you even do experiments? And that's you go well because that's science. You know, that, that's kind of what you what, what you do. Yeah. And it's interesting because when I was doing some research for this interview, I wanted to learn a little bit about sociology. And one of the things I heard that uh, Durkheim was criticized for um, was that he said that certain things could be social pathologies. Mm -hmm. And and he was criticized because in the time he was said, no, sociology is meant to be value free. Sociology is meant to be like science, value-free, right? Mm -hmm. And now you're saying certain things are pathological and that's smuggling values in. Well, it sounds far from value-free now. Oh, yeah. That is, I mean, if we're talking about, I mean, I have, I have complaints about my field, but uh, 
I, I, there's been a lot of good ideas, a lot of things that interest me, which is why I got into it and I, I stay sure. into it. But um, there's also been some areas where it's, it's gone off the rails over the years mm -hmm. and, and it's declined. And one of those areas is in the rejection of uh, Hume's guillotine, that distinction between a factual statement and a judgment about the world. And it's just amazing to me how prevalent the rejection of that distinction has become. It's just taken for granted and amongst a lot of people. And it, it muddies the waters of the field and makes it difficult to have a rational conversation about what causes X, Y, or Z, or even just describing things. People assume you're, you're evaluating them or judging them in some way when you're yeah. just trying to describe what you're seeing. And there's a lot of people within the field, not everybody, like it's a very big, broad, diverse field, but there's a lot of people who just explicitly reject the idea of doing science. They're, they're hostile to it. They, mm. you know, it's an activist field. They want it to be activism and, and judging things. Uh, they might not like the term social pathology because that sounds old and conservative, mm. but they have their own values they smuggle in. Or well, not even I, smuggle, is to announce. Yeah. I guess I want to bring something, because when we do this show, I'm always trying to find ways to give people information or value that they might not get in another show. And a couple of things spring to mind for me from like our philosophical ancestry or milieu. Um, <clears throat> one is, well, one is whether it's, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to uh, smuggle in values or, or, or things like that as long, sorry, smuggle in would be the wrong thing to state value judgments as long as you uh, justify them and you say that's where you're coming from and you're mm -hmm. willing to debate them. Another thing is this idea of social science. Now, one of our, uh, our intellectual ancestors, Ludwig von Mises, primarily known by as an economist, but many people at the time were saying, well, you know, he's a sociologist as well. He eschewed the term because he thought that it had, that sociology had a Marxist uh, or, or a left, was a left-wing field, although mm -hmm. he was heavily influenced by Weber. Now he said that you can't do social science the same way that you do science because Mises wants to say look iron is iron it always has a certain melting point and all iron is the same but human beings have values and um, they have ideas which change they have they, they have different degrees of information that change uh, and, and so forth uh, and so you cannot apply the scientific method to the social sciences and he he actually uh, invented well was party to inventing a field which he called praxeology where he tried to argue based on incentives uh, i don't know if you've heard anything ab about that or anything like that um but what what struck me when i was researching this was um weber also had a, if i don't know what they were but he had um objection to positivism as mm -hmm. well and if you can't speak to Mises objection at least you can explain uh, positivism versus anti-positivism from from your your knowledge um uh, well I'll start with I disagree with uh, Mises uh, okay that. I think it's a uh, get out get out <laughs> I think it's unimaginative uh, right to say that i mean iron is iron well no it's not it depends what kind of impurities are in it it depends on all kinds of other factors what the melting point is um, mm. water boils at different temperatures depending what elevation you're at you say oh it's bullshit this is not there's no generalization we can make about water you just realize there's other conditions you have to take account of when specifying things but as far as the whole positivism anti-positivism positivism and I tell this to my students all the time, every word in sociology means four different things because of the right. lack of unified paradigm. Right. But um, it could generally, the broad meaning is just doing social science scientifically, thinking you could have some sort of general propositions about behavior. And I would maintain we do. We have, we have a couple uh, good candidates, things like uh, people tend to imitate higher status parties more than lower status parties conflicts involving a, 
a third party who's close to both sides or less violent than conflicts where the third party is close to one side but distant from the other, things like that. Yeah. But uh, positivism can also overpromise. And I think that's maybe where some people have problems with it. They, they maybe have ideas about what science can bring to the study of society that are asking too much. Mm. So what I think kind of things I just cited as examples, these sort of if-then generalizations, they have their use, but they're not going to solve all our political and moral and cultural debates because those are rooted in all kinds of different values that we have and different ways of adjudicating between competing values or balancing uh, things we might you know, about value two things for different you know values or levels of value on them. Um, how much do I value freedom versus safety? How much do you value freedom versus safety? We both value freedom and safety though, right? Right. Uh, it's just what, what trade-offs are you willing to make that I'm not willing to make? Or people sometimes expect that if you have a social science, it will you know, predict the future, which you know, um, it's a complex system. You can't predict the weather five days in advance either. Uh, complex systems uh, forecasts tend to go awry the further you get into the future. Right. So, so there's that um, aspect of the positivism, anti-positivism debate. Uh, in that sense, I am positivist. But other meanings of positivism, Comte sort of viewed it as almost providing a religion for society. Uh, we're going to be the philosopher kings. Okay, that's silly. Right. No, it's not going to happen. Right. And then there's like the logical positivism <laughs> of, of you know, Carnap and, and the Vienna Circle, the philosophers who thought you could prove uh, theories true. And I think... Karl Popper deep six that a long time ago, and uh, the Einsteinian revolution supported that idea. Uh, all this knowledge is a human creation and yeah. subject to revision. So I reject that sort of positivism too. So um, another thing that I picked up that I thought was worth um, talking about since our show is called Sociology for Libertarians is um, Durkheim was a fan of the Enlightenment, but he didn't like the individualist um, strain amongst the Enlightenment philosophers. And um, uh, we are getting our, uh, a lot of our listeners are getting their prickles up. Do you want to talk about social, sociology's relationship to individualism or collectivism? Or, or is that something that you have anything that you'd like to comment on? If not, I can skip. I, I would just say, I mean, we could look at it in two ways. One is, is from a theoretical uh, point of view, and we're talking about, um, you know, where sociology fits into the intellectual division of labor. Um, something we mentioned in our chapter on sociology in the book is that sociologists uh, at, in the 19th century agreed with the new liberal enlightenment uh, philosophy in the sense we're going to explain things scientifically and rationally, but they also gave some attention to the concerns of the cultural conservatives of the period that you know communities are important. People are shaped by things outside of themselves. Mm -hmm. We're not just completely autonomous individuals. These communities uh, shape us and are important to us in various ways. And that was one of Durkheim's big points of emphasis, as you note. Um, he, he was a, a secular Jew who still went to temple because he wanted to be part of the Jewish community. And he recognized that rituals and common uh, activities like that were important for building those ties, and those ties were important for uh, people's happiness and belonging and all that kind of stuff. So in that sense, yeah, um, we often put emphasis on those collective things, but people might also translate that into an ethical sort of individualism or collectivism. And I've heard sociologists say this, um, you shouldn't be an individualist ethically or politically because we know collectivism is the right thing. I'm like, well, no, that doesn't follow. I mean, uh, individual emphasizing individual rights is a very different thing from saying community is important for four people. Yes, yes, and that's how I view it as well. Um, so uh, here's a question that a lot of people are are concerned with this day or, or want demystified. What is the difference between modernism and postmodernism? Oh, the hell if I know. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I went to grad school. I started in 2000. And postmodernism was in a lot of ways on, on the wane then. Uh, yeah. it's, it, I think its heyday was sort of the, the 80s and 90s. And I never found a coherent definition of it. I just associated it with a 
a conjurie of different positions and arguments, usually a lot of word games and the idea that reality itself is but a word game. Everything's yeah. just uh, language and how we define things changes them and there's no objective reality at all underneath it. That's my, that's my conception of postmodernist social science. I don't know how postmodernists would tend to define themselves or if what right. I said is exactly fair, but mostly it, it was a load of bullshit and I had little interest in it. Um, nowadays, I mean, people sometimes complain that modern social science is postmodernist, but I'm not sure. Um, they don't seem relativist for one thing. They seem, in a lot of ways, morally absolutist. Yeah, it seems like yeah. that to me. I don't get this when people are saying... necessarily. <laughs> Yeah, so. yeah. I, I get the same when people are saying, oh, it's all postmodernism. No, well, that was the idea that you can't have objective moral values, but they seem very clear on mm. what opinions are not allowed, uh, those such as ours, for example. <laughs> um, and uh, I guess I was interested. Well, I want to talk a little bit about this because I think my perception of this, the sociology as a field, at least as studied in the universities, is we want to figure out, and this might the reason why I ask this is it might be the view of many libertarians, right? We're going to sit here and study society so that we can find out how um, we can engineer a utopia versus um, through legislation. And mm -hmm. uh, to staunch libertarians, that basically means we want to force our way of life down your throat. Right. At gunpoint for your own good. Now, mm -hmm. I'm obviously giving the least charitable um, rendering of that position. I'm doing that kind of deliberately because it's it's the best way to put it forward. So, right. to what extent is that true or not true? Of course, I think that it's good. From my perspective, it's great to study society and see what works and and whatnot. But I'd rather that uh, people were given a wide berth to adopt these things voluntarily than they were instituted by policy. Yeah, I think Tom would agree. But yeah. yeah, I'll go with that. Uh, what What's your uh, What's your take on the question? It was a pretty big question. I grant <laughs> that. Yeah. Well, it actually ties into something I, I've been mulling over in my head recently, which is practical applications of sociological research or just general wisdom of about society you might get from all the fields of social science. And there's this tradition, and you're right, in sociology, it's often a very top-down conception of how we apply this knowledge. And when I was new to the field and being trained as an undergrad, I was taught that it's a good thing to end a paper with policy recommendations. Right. Uh, so this is the policy they should follow, this and that. And, I, and I, over the years, I started thinking, well, it's silly on a couple of levels, one of which being no, no one who makes policy gives a damn what I publish in an academic journal somewhere. Right. I have no power to enforce policy anyway, but if I wanted that power. And so one of the things I started doing in my teaching, uh, when I talk about potential applications of patterns we've been discussing or other things, is thinking of more application from the ground up. Like how would the student apply this, being yes, that with all odds, they're not gonna be someone in any sort of position to institute policy. How would you uh, shape this in your own life? And I've been thinking more about applications in that way to the point where I might actually try to write something on them on sort of bottom-up social technology, which uh, from a libertarian point of view is preferable anyway, and from a practical point of view is also more doable for most people. And so I'm mean, trying to get away from that sort of, you know, the, the God fantasy of central management mm -hmm. that we're going to use this knowledge to remake society and more like, you know, how could you shape something in your own life or community using a couple of uh, a couple of the basic patterns that tend to crop up again and again in studies of you know conflict or crime yeah. or whatever excellent so what's your elevator pitch for those at home why should people study more and learn more about sociology a general wisdom about how people do what they do. And you can't have to get it just from sociology. You could just read a ton of history and you'll start noticing the patterns on your own. But sometimes when you have someone who's been out looking for those patterns themselves and have digested things already for you, that's helpful. Sure. Uh, I recommend a couple of particularly good things in my opinion. Um, among the subfields of sociology, criminology tends to be a little bit more hard-nosed and scientific 
partly because they're focused on a core question about behavior. Why do you get more or less crime? Yeah. Uh, within that field, uh, you have people like uh, Lawrence Sherman, who might still be based in the UK now, uh, who's an experimental criminologist. He actually gets uh, police departments to cooperate with him on doing controlled experiments to see what policies change crime rates. Hmm. There's the work of uh, my, my immediate colleagues who study conflict using the theories of sociologist Donald Black. Obviously, I find value in those. That's why I work in that area. Donald Black, Mark Cooney, M.P. Baumgartner, uh, Scott Phillips, Roberta Senechal de la Roche. They study things like vengeance killings, lynchings, riots, why these sorts of patterns of violent conflict happen. Network theory is one of the field's most active areas now in terms of scientific development. Mark Granovetter, Ronald Burt, Nicholas Christakis uh, analyze social networks and how the structure of networks uh, predicts and explains all kinds of things from the spread of illnesses to the spread of fads and yeah. uh, culture and so forth. And there's some nice practical applications that come out of that. Uh, Christakis has a TED talk you can find online about making early prediction or early warning systems for flu outbreaks so you can have your hospitals stocked up appropriately and plan for having lots of people out sick and things like that. And a lot of the comparative and cross-cultural stuff tends to be pretty good because if you're doing that sort of work, you're, you're less caught up in the uh, common sense and ideological things of your own you know, close to home issues. And people like Gerhard Linsky or Jack Goldstone uh, doing work on social revolutions or uh, how patterns of inequality and power and privilege change over the course of history. A lot of that stuff's really good. So there's okay. good stuff out there. I know uh, our reputation is not sterling in this day and age. Uh, when I introduce myself to like economists or whoever, it's kind of like, oh, really, a sociologist. But right. there's a lot of good work out there. There really is. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, in terms of the, the whole concept of victimhood culture and its growth, and it's it's certainly affecting universities and campuses here in the UK as well. Mm -hmm. But unless you unless you actually take note, study, and and look into these things, the, I think the vast majority of people out there think it's just you know hype. You know, oh, this is just you know this is just the right wing press blowing oh, uh, yeah. things up out of proportion. Yeah. Why is it? Why is it important? What are the what are the dangers of this? If it gets out of control, well, I think it is out of control already. What are the dangers of it? How long is it going to last? What do we do about it? Mm. Well, the dangers, I think, uh, are several. And you know, from a libertarian point of view especially, um, this is a moral culture that encourages increasing dependence on authority and the increasing policing of conduct by authority and a kind of totalitarian mentality where you have to watch what you say constantly or you will wind up being subjected to some sort of harsh measures or at least running the risk of it. Yeah. And you, it's coupled with the growth of administration and the intrusion of bureaucracy into everyday life. And that kind of, people don't often realize totalitarianism can be bottom up too. Yeah. Uh, yes. In the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, people were denouncing each other left and right over minor interpersonal spats. He's, okay, yeah, this guy pissed me off, call him yeah. a capitalist, and there he goes, you know? So that's yeah. I think people are more afraid. Actually, most of this, most of the policing is horizontal. It's not top down. People are afraid of what the people around them think. Mm -hmm. Right. So at least that sort of paranoia, um, it can exacerbate all kinds of conflicts. I mean, the <coughs> impetus behind a lot of these measures to police what we say and make rules about offending people is to reduce racial and ethnic conflict. But teaching people to be very sensitive or teaching them that uh, this group can do whatever because uh, they, they've been through a lot and you're, yeah. you're, you have no uh, cause to complain about anything no matter what happens to you, that's going to breed resentment. It's going to breed people noticing things more, noticing slights more and focusing on them. And it breeds what we call a competitive victimhood as well where people's reaction when you say, oh, shut up, you're privileged, is to say, oh, you don't understand, I grew up in a poor neighborhood and 
I had all this hardship and all that. And so people just sit there comparing who's more victimized. And yes. Is, is it victim, is it victim jogger privilege jockeying? They can't, they call it. I don't know. Right. Yeah. And that's not healthy. This is the same pattern you see in a lot of long running violent conflicts, like the troubles or the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Mm. Both sides are convinced they're the one who's been victimized the most and really deserves retribution and sympathy. Mm. Yeah. So there's that there's, uh, consequences for, free expression and for like we talked earlier about the pursuit of social science if there's certain mm -hmm. questions you're not allowed to ask or certain answers you're not allowed to propose that's not yeah. for the growth of knowledge so we we do think there's some problems that arise and this is not just something uh, combined or confined to campuses anymore it's spreading no. in the corporate no. world the government world Laws will be put into place. Well, they are being put in. They place. are. Yeah. So, I mean, even when I went, I, I'm a counselor. When I went to, and I probably maybe could even get in trouble for saying this if the main, uh, if 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 people found out. But you know, in a, in an interview, I was asked what my, um, ex and on the forum, what my experience. Uh, dealing with difference and diversity was and a couple of other questions that are in this um, paradigm. And I thought, well, what if I was a conservative? You know, what if I didn't agree with the parsing of the question? Why do I need to submit to mm. accepting uh, the social justice view mm. of reality in mm. order to be qualified to be a psychotherapist? I mean, I don't like to look at my clients through the lens of their sex, class, race. I like to look at them as, as an individual who's got various advantages and disadvantages. Some of them may be because of their gender. Most of them aren't. Most of them are yeah. universal. And I resented being asked to, sub I, I, I gave an answer that was suitable, but I, resent <coughs> I, I, I resented being forced to submit to um, their paradigm. I thought it wasn't fair. But, uh, yeah, well, just that on more, well, not more importantly, but we we are in a situation here in the UK, especially in Scotland, where we have a lot. We have two things: it's hate crime and hate incidents. However, the two are conflated, and people people are encouraged to report hate incidents, mm -hmm. and those can be in it. But the wording, even in, on Police Scotland's website, the word of it itself is a hate crime or a hate incident can be anything that someone perceives to be uh, hateful or bigoted or upsetting. And that's that's really dangerous. You know, when it's all about perception, well, it doesn't really matter what you said or what the intent behind it was. This is what I perceive it to be, therefore it is. And it's not theoretic anymore we know we, we had one guy you know the famous case where the guy got arrested because he you know he taught his dog to do a nazi salute but to the trigger the trigger was gas right. the jews which he said repeatedly now whether or not you found the, the joke funny it or whether or not you found it in funny, bad but... bad taste um it's not something that somebody should be incarcerated for but this is actually happening and you know and until it affects them personally or somebody they know People don't seem to be uh, getting too worried about it, and and that's a disturbing, a disturbing trend in my view. But I mean, we've, we've talked about the problems. We know the problems. We know the problems are there. How do we get the message out? Wh what do we do about it? How, when is this thing actually going away? Is it going to get worse before it gets better? Mm. I'm always a little bit wary of forecasting the future. For yeah, they said earlier. Even if I, even if my ideas about what causes this are accurate i don't know uh, how the trends will continue yeah but my sense is it's going to keep increasing at least for the near future um so in that sense if you don't like it like i don't like it it is going to get worse before it gets better yeah as far as what we can do to scale it back that's a difficult question mm. and here again even if our ideas about the sort of things that cause this are, are correct uh, we're talking often about broad historical trends that it's not a whole lot any one of us can necessarily do. And we're talking about sometimes uh, negative consequences of things that might be positive trends, like uh, greater uh, racial and sex equality. Like, okay, I don't want to go back to the system sure. where strict inequalities, but having relative equality might be part of what makes people super sensitive to any mm -hmm. sort of differences. 
Yeah. But one of the things we, we've focused on when we talk about practical steps people can take uh, is supporting things like the free range parenting movement, it's called, which tries to scale back helicopter parenting and, and provide resources and support for parents who want to give their kids more freedom to explore and learn and face challenges and learn how to manage conflicts. Because yeah. you get these stories where you see someone, you know, uh, you know child protective services is called on them and they, they get in legal trouble yeah. because they let their kid walk down the street alone uh, to the store or something like that. And so yeah. you could try to come up or contribute to local organizations or form a local organization that supports people in those circumstances. Uh, the other thing is trying to scale back the growth of administrative authority, which is not something I have very clear ideas on how to do yet, because yeah. that's, that's been the big problem uh, for anyone who doesn't like bureaucratic bloat for forever. Yeah. And how do you, you know, starve the beast or, or scale it back in any way? So my, my next line of thinking is thinking about here again, looking at more bottom-up approaches to applying sociological knowledge, is there a way to, a bottom-up approach to, uh, if not decrease the omnipresence of these authorities, uh, to encourage people to not depend on them so much and to uh, learn how to handle things more through talking to one another mm -hmm. and uh, settling their differences in a more productive way? And I think one of the problems is with the internet, um, our communication is so impersonal that right. when you see someone that you don't know expressing an opinion you disagree with, it's easy to be hostile, it's easy to be irritating, it mm. feels emotionally satisfying to each of us. And you go, and your friends go, Yeah, you sure told him. I fear that when it comes to our political dialogue, it's actually exacerbating the problem because in the short term, you feel good because you sure argued them down. But in the long term, that is a person that's less likely to look at your ideas and want to engage. And I really don't know what the solution to that is, um, but uh, I'm sure you'll write an insightful paper explaining <laughs> <laughs> One, one can only hope. <laughs> um, well, Jason, it's thank you so much for having, uh, for coming on our show. His book is The Rise of Victimhood Culture. And if you do write that book on applied sociology for individuals, let us send us a bell and maybe we'll have you back sometime in the future. That'd be great. Thanks for having me on. It was good talking to you. No, thank you. Thank you. We had a great time. All right, take care of yourselves.